Our second reading this morning uh, comes from Acts chapter 5. I will read verses 12 through 16. Hear the word of God. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. A bronze serpent hoisted on a pole, the shadow of a saint walking past, Two ways in which people were healed from deadly sicknesses. If those events were reported in the New York Times today, some of us might raise a skeptical eyebrow. A serpent on a pole sounds like magic. A healing as the result of a passing saint sounds like hypnotic suggestion. To non-believers, miracles seem like primitive superstitions or a reversion to a pre-scientific worldview. And yet the Bible gives us many first-hand reports of precisely these kinds of signs and wonders. How do we square our modern scientific ideas with the signs and the wonders that we read about in Scripture? That's the question I want to answer today. Now let me say right up front that I affirm the scientific view of the universe. I think Christians should be scientific. I think Christians also should be proud of the fact that the scientific revolution in the 16th and the 17th century happened in the Christian world. Modern science as a method and as a system of thought did not emerge in Hindu culture in India or Confucian culture in China or the various animist cultures in Africa or the Americas. Modern science was born and developed in Christian Europe and this way of thinking is the most successful export of Christian Europe. Other nations with other religions and other cultures may reject Christianity and Western values, but every nation accepts modern science. Some people think there's a conflict between modern science and the Christian faith, but as I hope to show, the conflict is not real and is mostly due to a misunderstanding about the boundaries and the domain of science and the boundaries and the domain of faith. So we need to clarify those boundaries uh, this morning, and I think the best way to do that is to go all the way back to St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, long before the emergence of modern science, long before the apparent conflict between science and faith. Aquinas was a Roman Catholic priest. He was a university professor, He wrote on virtually every topic under the sun, medicine, history, law, philosophy, theology. He was, uh, or he is, the patron saint 
of academics. He is also the patron saint of pencil makers. I don't know how many pencil makers there are, but uh, he is their patron saint. Aquinas had a comprehensive encyclopedic view of human knowledge. In the 13th century, the word science, scientia in Latin, simply meant knowledge, any kind of human knowledge. And Aquinas identified boundaries between different domains of human knowledge. To think about the signs and the wonders that we see in Scripture, we need to talk about three domains that are identified by Aquinas. First is natural philosophy, second is natural theology, and third is revealed theology. For Aquinas, there was a progression in these sciences. Students at the university would begin by studying natural philosophy, and then they would study natural theology, and then finally they would study revealed theology. Natural philosophy is the precursor to what we now call natural science. It was the study of the physical universe... This term natural philosophy was used until the 19th century. This little book here, published in uh, 1831, has the catchy title, Conversations on Natural Philosophy, in which elements of that science are familiarly explained and adapted to the comprehension of young pupils illustrated with plates by the author of conversations on chemistry and conversations on political economy improved and appropriate with appropriate questions for the examination of scholars also by illustrative notes and a dictionary of philosophical terms that's the full title believe it or not this is a science book from 1831 one of the curious aspects of this book is that it only has seven planets in it Only seven planets when this book was published. And one of the planets is called Herschel's planet, which maybe you haven't heard about because now we call it Uranus after the Greek god of the sky. When it was first discovered, it was named after William Herschel, the guy who found it. So that's natural philosophy. We call it today natural science. Second is natural theology. Natural theology is what we know about God based on what we know from natural philosophy. By looking at the universe and by thinking about those things reasonably, there are certain conclusions that we can draw about God. We can know that there is a God. We can know that he is orderly, that he is good, that he is powerful. And knowing those things, we cannot say to God when we meet him on judgment day, gee, God, I didn't know you existed. I'm sorry I'm not prepared. Remember what we read in the first chapter of Romans. This is Romans 1.20. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what is made, so that people are without an excuse. From looking at the universe, we can know there is a God. Through our senses and through our ordinary human reason, we know there is a God. People in all times and all places, people in every culture and in every nation, have believed in the existence of God. We call that natural theology. Beyond natural theology is what Aquinas calls revealed theology. There are some things we can know about God 
through our senses and through our natural reason alone. But there's a lot about God that we cannot learn that way. And some of that stuff is really important. Some of that stuff actually makes the difference between heaven and hell. Fortunately, God in his love for us chose to reveal certain things to us, things beyond what we could know naturally. And those things are comprehended by the science that Aquinas called revealed theology. Here's how the Westminster Confession describes the distinction between natural theology and revealed theology 400 years after Aquinas. This is the first chapter in the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable. Okay, that's the natural theology part. Yet, are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation? Therefore, it pleased God at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church. That's the revealed theology part. And afterwards, for better preserving and propagating the truth, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary. So now this paragraph says four things. Number one, it says that we can know that there's a God just by looking around us at the universe. And so we're without excuse. That's natural theology. Number two, what we learn through natural theology is, quote, not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. So even with natural theology, we still have a problem with God. Number three, God chooses to reveal himself to people at sundry times and in diverse manners. Now, he did that through the prophets. He did that through Jesus And what God revealed was a knowledge that was needed or necessary for salvation. That's revealed theology. It goes beyond what we can know without God's help. Number four, God caused all of that revelation to be written down. That's the Bible. And the Bible is important to us because it contains things that we cannot know in any other way. So in Aquinas' division of human knowledge, there are certain things that belong to natural philosophy or natural science, and there are things that we learn from natural philosophy that lead us to some basic knowledge of God, that he exists, that he's good, that he's powerful, that's natural theology, but to have a saving knowledge of God requires something extra. Our senses and our human reason alone don't give us everything that we need uh, to be saved. We can only have saving knowledge of God if God gives it to us. It is knowledge that is beyond the senses and beyond what natural reason alone can give. It is revealed theology. In some, there are different domains of human knowledge. One domain is natural philosophy. These days we call it natural science or the physical sciences. That domain embraces the the created universe, known to our senses and to the operation of human reason. The second domain is natural theology. That domain embraces everything that human reason alone can deduce about God based upon what it knows from the natural sciences. And the third domain is called revealed theology, and that domain embraces all of God's revelation. And it's in that domain that we find the things that are necessary to please God and to be saved. The domain of Christianity, our faith, is 
revealed theology. And revealed theology contains two parts. Things which are spiritual and things which are supernatural. Now maybe you've never thought about the difference between what's spiritual and what's supernatural, but it's an important distinction. Let me make that for you uh, here this morning. First, let's talk about spiritual things. Humans are both body and spirit. Our bodies are those parts of us that we can see, those parts of us that we can put on a scale and weigh. Bodies are known to the senses. And bodies, in almost all cases, are within the domain of the natural sciences, the physical sciences. Now, please note that I said, in almost all cases. We'll get back to that in a minute. But in addition to our bodies... There are all of those parts of ourselves that we cannot see with our eyes, that we cannot put on a scale. We experience our spirits more than we experience our bodies. Every thought we think, every act of will that we exert, every value we hold, every judgment we make, every desire we have, every emotion we experience, all of these things are spiritual. These things are not visible. None of them can be placed on a scale or put into a CAT scan. Spirits are not in the domain of the natural sciences. They are, however, in the domain of natural and revealed theology. So that's the spiritual. What about the supernatural? Well, the supernatural is kind of interesting. Because the supernatural sits on this border between the physical and the spiritual. Because the supernatural uh, involves events which are physical, but don't operate according to the laws of physics. This morning we're talking about signs and wonders. Our scripture lesson says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. These signs and wonders, these miracles, are supernatural events. They are physical events, apparently, which violate the laws of physics. Now think for a moment of the miracles of Jesus. You know, walking on water, uh, feeding the 5,000, turning water into wine. Those are physical events. They are events inside of the created universe. These are things that in the, that should be in the domain of the natural sciences, and yet they're somehow different. Natural science tells us that people cannot walk on water. Natural science tells us that five loaves and fishes cannot feed 5,000 people. Natural science tells us that water cannot be transmuted into wine. And yet, that is precisely what happened. These are supernatural events. These are miracles. And we know them through revelation. Beginning in the 19th century... Some scientifically oriented Christians became embarrassed by these stories of miracles that we find in the Bible. Science tells us that these things couldn't have possibly happened. And so certain individuals in the late 19th and early 20th century wanted to save Christianity from the embarrassment of having unscientific ideas. And the way they did this was to spiritualize Things that were supernatural. They explained away the miracles by converting the supernatural, natural law violating aspect of those events into safe, cozy, banal spiritual truths. I remember, for example, a sermon in which 
A preacher explained that the physical miracle of feeding of 5,000 by Jesus actually was a kind of spiritual event. That it wasn't that Jesus made more bread and fish, but rather that the, the generosity and the hospitality of Jesus inspired the generosity and the hospitality of the people in the crowd. And so they began to pull out hidden pieces of food and to share it with each other. Okay? This is a naturalistic explanation of a supernatural event. And it's a mistake. Supernatural events, miracles, have this awkward feature of being physical and yet not behaving the way physical things are supposed to behave. Christianity, which is the domain of revealed theology, has both spiritual and supernatural truths. Spiritual truths are easily separated from the domain of natural sciences, but supernatural truths are awkward. Now let me say something quick about the supernatural before moving on to what's the real point of this sermon. The apostles had seen supernatural things. Peter saw Jesus walk on the water. Paul met Jesus, who had been dead, but was no longer dead. And because of those crazy experiences, those men were willing to die for Christ. We cannot explain away these experiences. We cannot put them down to, you know, Peter and Paul were just unscientific. Because even in their day, they knew that what they had seen didn't make sense. Something weird was going on. For whatever reason, God had given them a peek into another world. A world beyond this world. And those men, in possession of their full reason, gave up everything in this world in order to make it to that world. One day, we will meet God and Some of the mysteries of the relationship between the supernatural and the natural world will be ironed out for us. The two realms will hold together in a way that we can't see right now. And even though we don't understand those things now, as Christians, we make a fatal mistake in thinking we can explain away the miracle stories of the Bible. The Christian faith is spiritual, but it's also supernatural. Okay, we've talked about the domain of Christianity, which contains both spiritual and supernatural truths. What about the sciences? What's the proper domain of the sciences? Natural sciences study the physical universe. The natural sciences identify connections between cause and effect among physical things in the created universe. The natural sciences seek to understand ever more fully and precisely how the world operates, how cause and effect are connected. And I think all Christians should be interested in the natural sciences. In spite of reports to the contrary, there is no real conflict between Christianity and science, but there is open warfare between Christianity and what philosophers call scientism. Scientism is the belief that there is nothing beyond the domain of science. It is the belief that science and its methods comprehend all of reality. Scientism is the belief that all true statements must be scientific statements. 
Scientism runs afoul not only of religion, but also of philosophy. The debate regarding scientism in the professional philosophical literature has been running hot for several decades now. Let me give you a simple illustration of the error of scientism. Let's talk about love, which is a spiritual phenomenon, not supernatural, and not merely physical. Most of us have had the experience of falling in love. It's a powerful experience. It turns your world upside down. For thousands of years, people in every culture have talked about and sung about and written about love. Billions of people have experienced love firsthand. But what do the physical sciences have to say about love? Well, science can talk about hormones and about how hormones are adapted to procreation and procreation ensures the survival of your DNA on the planet after you die. Scientifically speaking, falling in love is a chemical trick caused by your DNA, which itself is the result of a purposeless and random evolution. Now imagine if, as a teenager, you write a note to Sally in your high school history class, and you say, Sally... As the result of the cumulative effects of thousands of generations of random mutations in the human genome, the testosterone in my body tells me that I need to reproduce. And the visual data that I gather from looking at you tells me you might be fertile. So I'm wondering if we might meet after school and begin a human courtship ritual, say at Starbucks at 4 o'clock. If that's what you wrote to Sally, I hope you're still unmarried. Normal people know what love is. And that spiritual knowledge is not related to the physical sciences. Scientism, which claims all knowledge must be scientific, is simply blind to this truth that everybody knows. Normal human conversations about love are not irrational. They're just not scientific. We make an error, the error of scientism, if we think science has an answer to every question. It doesn't. The domain of science is the physical universe and the causal relation among its parts. That domain is very important. It is very interesting. But it is not the whole story. So let's go back to the Acts of the Apostles. I'm slowly approaching the point of this sermon. Okay, this sermon, like, was 9,000 words long. It's only supposed to be 3,000 words long. It was like 9,000 words long, and I'm conning, cutting, cutting, cutting. It's still really long, so hold on. We took the, the cushions off the pew so you wouldn't go to sleep anymore. Our reading began with this sentence. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly being done by, uh, were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Signs and wonders are New Testament words uh, for what we also call miracles. These were physical events which didn't have an obvious uh, natural explanation. They were supernatural events. And there were many 
of these miracles. These miracles were happening regularly, we're told. And not just by anyone, by the way, but that are happening by the hands of the apostles. Jesus, of course, was a miracle worker. His ministry is inseparable from his miracles. His identity is inseparable from his miracles. There were miracles of mercy, like healing people and feeding people. There were also miracles which seemed to have no purpose other than to show that Jesus was beyond the laws of physics, like walking on water and calming a storm and being transfigured. We cannot think of Jesus without his miracles. But remember what Jesus said the night of the Last Supper to his disciples. Jesus said, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's actually the point of the sermon. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus had been doing amazing things. But he told his apostles that they're going to do even more amazing things. And notice that Jesus says, whatever you do in my name... Uh, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. In the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus has already returned to the Father. But he continues to perform miracles through the Apostles. It is Jesus who's doing these things. Remember the lame man on the steps of the temple. Peter says to him, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. It's a mistake to say that Peter healed that man. Jesus healed him. And why did Jesus heal him? Here's the point of the sermon. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The purpose of the miracles of the apostles was to glorify God in Jesus Christ. And that's what makes them signs. Notice that they're called simea, signs. A sign is something that points beyond itself. The miracle is not important. It's just a flashing neon sign that directs our attention to God. Jesus and the apostles were compassionate men. They were moved by physical suffering that they saw around them. But the goal of the miracles was not to relieve the suffering of individuals that they touched, but rather to turn their gaze and the gaze of all humankind to God. Notice this. It was within the power of Jesus to heal every person in Israel. It was within the power of Jesus to alleviate the poverty of every person in Israel. It was within the power of Jesus to end every kind of political oppression in Israel. He could have done it. He could have stood on the pinnacle of the temple with 10,000 angels at his command and with a single word righted every wrong. He could have done it. So why didn't he? Sickness and poverty and oppression and injustice are the result of sin. 
They are a consequence of the fall. But all of those evils, as dreadful as they are, are merely the sign of, the symptom of a deeper and more fundamental problem, which is our alienation from God. Our biggest problem is not that we are sick or poor or oppressed. Our biggest problem is that we are separated from God. Jesus could have healed the signs and the symptoms of the deep problem. He did that here and there by healing this leper, by feeding that hungry person. Jesus could have healed the signs and the symptoms of the deep problem, but Jesus' great miracle was providing the sacrifice that was the cure to that deep problem. The sickness that is the root of every other human problem. Listen, I can be well, but not saved. I can be full, but not saved. I can be rich, but not saved. I could be free, but not saved. The great wonder of Jesus is not that he healed people. The great wonder is that he saved them. The healings were supernatural. They apparently violate the laws of nature. The healings were supernatural, but our salvation is spiritual. When we're saved, our dead spirit comes back to life. When we're saved, the weight of guilt is lifted. When we're saved, our bondage to sin is loosed. When we're saved, friendship with God is restored. Those things happen at the spiritual level, the level that the natural sciences cannot grasp or even see. The miracles of Jesus point to his divinity. They are signs of his divinity. The miracles of the apostles were signs too, signs that attracted people, attracted them to the saving gospel. But as important as the physical realm is, as important as our bodies and our purses are, humans are not just physical. We're spiritual. And when our spirits are alive and healthy, then the physical domain also falls into order. Yes, if we lived in a world where everyone had a relationship with God, all visible evils would begin to fade away. That's what's going to happen when we get to New Jerusalem, because only the redeemed are going to enter New Jerusalem, and all the troubles of this life will simply be absent. But in this world... We can never forget that the visible evils all around us are merely the signs of, the symptoms of, the real and the deep problem. Which leads to a more complicated truth. Namely, it is not the job of the world, I'm sorry, it is not the job of the church to save the world from sickness and poverty and injustice and oppression. That's the job of governments. The job of the church is to bear witness to Jesus Christ, who is the Savior. The good deeds that we do in the name of Jesus, their purpose is not to save the world, but rather to direct the attention of people to God and to praise Him because of our good deeds. The purpose of the 
churches to attack the root of the problem. Not simply to relieve the symptoms of the problem. One of the dangers in focusing on the symptoms of the problem is that we never solve the real problem. If I can take a pill that will keep me at the weight that I want to be at, why would I ever go to the trouble of eating well and exercising? If I can have money in my wallet by playing the lottery, why would I ever go to the trouble of working hard? What we need more than anything in this life is a real relationship with God. And I think all of us have had the experience, the hard experience, of having the troubles of this life be precisely the things that drive us to God. I think all of us have had the experience of an especial closeness with God in the midst of our greatest troubles. It's no accident that rich people are less likely to be in church on Sunday morning than poor people. The wealthier we are, the more comfortable we are, the less likely we are to be aware of our deep need of God. All people, of course, rich people and poor people need God. We all need a real relationship with God because a relationship with God is what makes sense of the rest of our lives. If we worship God, everything else falls into its proper place. If we have a real relationship with God, our relationship with our families and our communities and our nation and our world become well-ordered and sane. People who have real relationship with God don't hate other people. They don't abuse other people. They don't take advantage of other people. Government is a human structure which seeks to alleviate the symptoms of evil in this world. It's part of God's general grace. A well-ordered government makes life easier and more pleasant, makes our environment safer and more congenial. We should all do our part to promote good government. But government and politics only address the symptoms of evil. And all governments are temporary. No kingdom, no empire, no republic lasts forever. But the church of Jesus Christ is forever. As long as there's a planet Earth, there will be a church of Jesus Christ. And our focus is on the deep core of evil. I understand the compassion that makes us want to alleviate the symptoms. But we miss... The Christian message. We miss the mission of Christ if we focus on the symptom rather than the problem. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Yes, those were miracles. Those were supernatural events. But the real payoff comes two verses later where we hear the spiritual harvest. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Both men and women. That's the good news. The good news is that the church grew. The good news isn't that this or that person was healed. Are we looking for miracles in our lives? Or are we looking for Jesus? Sometimes... A miracle will direct our attention to Jesus. But sometimes we can come to Jesus just by hearing the revelation that's been given to us in Scripture. My prayer this day is that each one of us would long for God.
rather than the benefits of God. That we would long for a relationship with the Father rather than miracles. The miracles will come of their own accord. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we bless your name this day. And we thank you ah, for the saints of old and for the things they saw and the things they did. And we thank you for the way in which your Holy Spirit was alive and working in the church. Lord God, I pray that we would uh, expect your Holy Spirit to be alive and at work in this congregation in the same way. Draw us to yourself. Let us deal with the deep problem of our lives. Let us love others deeply as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.